Welcome to Daily Drive for Friday, October 21st, 2022. I'm Jamie Butters, Executive Editor of Automotive News. Kellen is out today. On today's show, Toyota concedes it won't reach its initial production target for this year. Safety regulators release new preliminary ADAS crash data, and GMC unveils its electric Sierra with a six-figure price tag. Plus, a conversation about how dealerships can reduce their legal exposure when it comes to unpaid wage claims. If the Department of Labor comes on site, a lot of times they will not only investigate the complaint that was made, but they'll take that as an opportunity to look into your other practices and they'll want to look at your payroll and timekeeping and those things. Let's run through all the news you need to know to keep up in the auto industry. Toyota is finally cutting its fiscal year production forecast. For months, the automaker has been clinging to its initial forecast of nearly 10 million vehicles despite persistent production shortfalls. Now, Toyota concedes that it must trim its plan for November due to the semiconductor crunch, and the company says it expects to lower its worldwide production schedule for the fiscal year ending March 31st, though it did not offer a new target. Federal government data show 10 fatal crashes involving vehicles equipped with advanced driver assist systems were reported from June through September. Each fatal crash involved Tesla vehicles. The agency and safety experts have said the data are preliminary and lack context, but are still useful for transparency. Center for Auto Safety Executive Director Michael Brooks says it's important to note Tesla may be overrepresented in the data because its vehicles remotely transmit that information. Other manufacturers may find out about a crash involving driver assist technology only from a consumer lawsuit or police report. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration has reported 16 fatal crashes involving vehicles with level 2 ADAS systems since the agency ordered manufacturers to report them starting in June 2021. Carvana remains stalled in Michigan. A state court has denied Carvana's request to block the state's decision to suspend its operating license over titling and registration issues. Michigan Court of Claims Judge Thomas Cameron wrote in an opinion that Carvana's bid for a temporary restraining order against Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson failed to demonstrate sufficient danger of the suspension causing irreparable harm to its reputation and operations. Cameron wrote it was unlikely Carvana would lose its market foothold or see its competitors attempt to replicate its purchasing process in the short time span covered by a temporary restraining order. He also concluded the state did not deny Carvana due process in the matter. And the exclusive club of pickup trucks sporting six-figure price tags is getting a new member. This truck knows how to greet me, like a trusted companion who's jacked with muscle, loaded with tech, and is just damn good looking. This is the first ever 2024 GMC Sierra EV Denali Edition 1. The $107,000 GMC Sierra EV Denali Edition 1 arrives in just over a year. It's the first of three planned trim levels. The Sierra EV Edition 1 is powered by a pair of electric motors for a rating of more than 750 horsepower. GMC says the pickup will have a range of 400 miles, towing capability of 9,500 pounds, and a brisk 0-60 to time. And like the GMC Hummer EV, the Sierra EV Denali Edition 1 will be able to do the crab walk. That may not be all for GMC brand electric trucks. Earlier this week, Bloomberg News reported that GM is considering adding a midsize Hummer pickup to the line. 
And those are today's headlines. Before we move on, a quick correction to a story we brought you yesterday on the show. Our Next Energy held a ribbon-cutting ceremony for its new engineering headquarters in Novi. In 2024, the company expects to start production at another facility, its new 20-gigawatt battery plant, dubbed One Circle. Coming up, four tips dealerships should know to avoid legal trouble when it comes to contract employees. That's next on Daily Drive. Slate Money is a weekly roundup of the most important stories from the world of business and finance. Hosted by Felix Salmon, Elizabeth Spires, and me, Emily Peck. Confused by crypto? Can't keep up with the metaverse? Wondering why the price of just about everything keeps rising? The Slate Money podcast is here for you. Listen to Slate Money every Saturday morning, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Daily Drive. I'm Jamie Butters. While vendors who supply workers such as detailers and porters to dealerships are responsible for all wages, sometimes in disputes, government agencies and lawyers for claimants will say the vendor and the dealership are joint employers and therefore both responsible for any wage violations. Senior editor Dan Shine spoke with Tillman Coffee, a partner in the law firm Fisher Phillips, to learn how dealerships can avoid those legal problems. Here's their conversation. Tillman, thanks so much for joining us on the Fixed Ops Friday uh, edition of Daily Drive. My pleasure. This is a first for us. Uh, we usually have Fixed Ops director, service managers, parts directors. Never had a lawyer on here, but uh, we're, we're glad to have a little bit of legal advice. <laughs> you may not you. want to have another one after this. So, <laughs> so our audience knows out there, you know, dealerships are turning to vendors, outside contractors, more and more to staff some of the positions in the dealership, you know, the porters, the detailers, car washers, valets, just because it's you know hard to find and staff these, you know, positions. But there are some pitfalls. And uh, I wanted to kind of talk to you a little bit about about that. Um, maybe first we start off talking about the Majestic Dealership Services case out of uh, Texas and, and a little bit about that and maybe how that might kind of lay the groundwork of what we want to talk about. In that case, the vendor was providing services to various dealerships in the Houston area and eventually did not pay his, its employees correctly. And the employees went to the uh, Department of Labor. And it turned out that the that Majestic was paying these employees or paying these persons, these workers as independent contractors. So they weren't even treating them as employees. And so I, I don't know exactly what the pay arrangement was, but it didn't meet minimum wage and overtime standards. And the Department of Labor uh, came after Majestic after I assume an employee with the Department of Labor complained. And Department of Labor has made no secret that they are, you know, going to enforce proper wage and, and uh, you know, state and federal guidelines for payment and compensation. Uh, so what are some of, you know, the kind of the pitfalls that dealerships face and how can they avoid this kind of case where they're hauled off uh, or sued for, you know, not paying uh, these employees? Well, there's a couple of ways it can happen is that in this case, a Majestic, luckily for the dealerships that were the clients, the Majestic had the funds to pay off to pay the back pay settlement. And so the dealerships never got intertwined in the actual controversy. In a lot of cases, the vendor does not have the funds or the vendor disappears and the Department of Labor still looking for the payment for these workers goes to the dealership under a theory, a joint employer theory, saying that 
both you and the vendor were the employee or employers of the workers, and therefore you're both liable for the pay. Now, like I said, in this case, Majestic paid what was owed and the dealership got involved, but that's how it happens a lot of times. Sometimes a dealership will treat the detailers or the valets as independent contractors and not comply with the wage and hour law because it's cheaper and turns out that they're considered employees and they have the same obligations to pay them overtime and minimum wage. So those are the things that happen from a structural standpoint. A lot of times the dealers, the detailers are referred by other dealerships in the area. I'm using XYZ detailing company and the dealership doesn't really do any background check to see how viable they are as a real uh, company, whether they have any kind of license and registrations or those kind of things. And so what are some of your recommendations? If I'm dealership, I'm having a hard time getting porters and detailers and I don't want it the hassle of it. I'm too busy. I'm looking to hire an outside vendor to do this for me. What are some of the do's and do's? I think you wrote a very interesting column that uh, we can link to later at, about uh, what are kind of four tips to, to do? To what are, one of the things that's not in those four tips is that I would do, if I were a dealership group, I would do, I would research the company like you would do a background check on an employee and see what's out there and see if we really, you really are about to engage in a relationship with a real business that has not had real problems that they're going to bring to your place. So I would do that before I started the process. And then if I found some a vendor that I liked, that I thought was above board and did things right, I would enter into a formal agreement with that person uh, and make them provide licenses and authorizations and all the things that you would need. And then have a written agreement with them that specified what they did and what we were going to do and what they had to bring to the table, like assurances that they had insurance and workers' comp and those things. And an indemnity provision in case something went sideways that they would indemnify the dealership if there was a problem. So I'd start with a written agreement with a real company. And then one of the things that generally gets some uh, a relationship like that in the hot water is that the employer or the dealership in this case, is doing more of the managing of the vendor than the vendor is. And the more the dealership is involved in the day-to-day activities of these vendors' employees, the more they look like dealership employees. So I would be reluctant to manage the day-to-day operations of the vendors that are on site because that makes them look like employees and strengthens an argument that there's a joint employment relationship. So I would do those things for sure. The other thing that that dovetails into the not managing or being involved in the day-to-day activities of the vendors, employees, is you want to train your managers to stay away and let the uh, vendor manage its employees. You certainly don't want to be involved in pay decisions and compensation decisions and scheduling and those things. The vendor needs to be doing all of that. The vendor should provide a invoice for the services that are provided pursuant to the agreement and the dealership pay that invoice and not focus on an individual's performance and production. And then the last thing is that anytime you enter into any kind of agreement with an outsider that could be considered your employee, you want to make sure that your other wage and hour compliance issues are sound because if the Department of Labor comes on site, a lot of times they will not only investigate the 
complaint that was made, but they'll take that as an opportunity to look into other your other practices and they'll want to look at your payroll and timekeeping and those things. So a good reminder to everybody is to look at this and the end of the year is a really good time to audit your wage and hour compliance because a lot of things will change at the first of the year. And if you do it, have to change things that is subsumed, subsumed in a bigger change, like a new handbook and those kind of things. So it's a good time to look. Going back a little bit to something you said, it just kind of really surprised me is dealership should not manage or kind of direct or supervise these, you know, I guess, independent contractors, which would seem like, you know, if there's not someone from the vendor on site, it would, I think it would be difficult for some of the dealership not to say to a person, hey, go wash this car, go deliver this, go do that. And so not managing or supervising would seem like a, a difficult task not to do for dealership. It, it is. And, you know, when you when the, the, the law looks at these situations where somebody's an independent contractor or a joint employee, they don't focus on just one factor. They look at the totality of factors. But control is a major factor. It's one that seems to be the focus on how much control did you have as the user of the vendor over the vendor's employees. Now, I'm not saying that it would be inappropriate for a sales manager to go back and say, I need you to redo this car or do this a little bit better. I don't think you get in trouble for that. But if if the picture that's painted is that the dealership employees are back there all the time and directing when and how, they start looking a lot like employees. It's hard to argue they're not. So. And one of the, kind of one of the selling points a lot of times that outside vendors will use when they're staffing your dealership with, you know, again, these porters and details, et cetera, is that, you know, they'll wear your company, you know, your dealership logo and you, the people won't even know that they don't, you know, that they don't work there, you know, technically. And I'm wondering if you think that is a good idea or if maybe they should have a different uniform to kind of, again, give them more, a little bit more of a separation yeah, in, in a perfect world, I would say, please don't wear the dealership's shirts and uniforms because if you ever have to defend against a one of these claims, it, that's a, certainly a strike against you. But that alone is not going to tip the scale. It would just be one of the factors that considered. I know that a lot of, there's a mentality out there that we want everybody here to wear our uniforms to eliminate the confusion, so to speak. Uh, but the appearance is not good for sure. Well, we'll leave it there. That was an interesting amount of food for thought for, you know, dealership service departments out there can kind of keep their legal things in check. Tillman, thanks so much for the time. I appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. Tillman Coffee is a partner in the law firm Fisher Phillips. He spoke with our own Dan Shine. That's Daily Drive for today. I'm Jamie Butters. Thanks to Automotive News coordinating producer Jake Neer for his help on today's podcast. You can get the latest news on fixed operations, manufacturing, and everything happening in the auto industry at autonews.com. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to like, leave a review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode.